0: Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key tax Estate and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. Well, thank you for taking time to listen to or watch this podcast video cast. And for those of you who, who I don't know, my name is Greg Sarian. I'm the CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. We are a financial consulting firm in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and we help public and private company executives through a pre-transaction planning process to get the best outcome from their equity as they approach and exit. And joining me today is Ken Taramina. Ken is the president of Cortland Advisors. Cortland is an M&A advisory firm that also helps shepherd private companies through a selling process. So Ken, thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot, Greg. So Ken, you and I have been talking about uh, the environment that we're in, and here we are in the fourth quarter, cases of COVID are spiking, we're coming out of a recession. It's a a more challenging backdrop. Uh, And we're talking about how are companies, founders preparing themselves to to move to a transaction in this more difficult environment. So what are the most important things that executives and founders of companies should think about if they plan to sell, say in one year, Ken, versus two or three?
1: Well, you know, Greg, that's a good question. A lot of people assume, a lot of owners assume, because they've been so busy and focused on their work, growing their company and, uh, and in this environment protecting it, that uh, selling would be a relatively easy thing to do, relatively easy, it's something they could do quickly. but it's not like selling a house. It's uh, it's something uh, a year from the day you start, even if you're completely prepared, it will probably take a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not prepared, and I'll talk about just a few of those uh, areas that you should be preparing in or thinking about, it could take much longer. So it's good to think about it on a going basis, the closer you get to wanting to exit, meaning two, three years out is not too soon to start looking at it. One of the first things we talked to our clients about is do they have a wealth advisor? And amazingly enough, maybe 25% of them do. And that's companies up in the hundreds of millions of dollars. The reason we think that's important is to make sure that they're planning for how they're going to take the equity, uh, the wealth they're taking out of the company, protect it from taxes, and at the same time deploy it intelligently so they could get as good or better a return as they did when they were the founder or president of or CEO of their company. So that's critical. The other thing uh, we tell people is that they need to start looking uh, at their books. They need to, if at all possible, they need to have auditable books. And that isn't something that you could just do overnight. So it's important not to have just one CPA, but a CPA firm that can uh, get their books in shape and auditable. That will increase the valuation of the company significantly and break down any issues during the due diligence after we find a buyer and they uh, sign a letter of intent to buy. It just speeds things along, increases the valuation. The other thing we we highly suggest people do is they hire a, a law firm that has a deal attorney or deal attorneys or a deal practice. Selling a company, you don't need a real estate attorney. You don't need a, uh, a family attorney. You need an, a, a law firm that has the experience dealing with uh, companies that are going to buy or sell and have it a lot. It's like a hard surgeon. You don't want to go to somebody that is doing it for the first time. This is incredibly important when working with the acquiring company, if it's bigger, or it's a private equity company, which in many cases it's going to be because they have the most money and then the most willing to move quickly, they will have a large law firm with them, uh, a well-known law firm that does this all the time. And you need an attorney, not necessarily lots of attorneys, but a good deal attorney that's used to working at that level that could work through the different issues and shield the company from problems. The other thing is if you've got partners or you've got uh, family, you really should be looking at your family agreements and your partner agreements to make sure that they're up to date. So there's no confusion on how the assets are going to be split once the sale is completed. The other thing is we, of course, you know, the reason we're talking to them is we think it's like uh, defending yourself as your own attorney or trying to sell your own house Having a merger and acquisition advisory company to help you who's used to doing this as a business all the time and representing you, not the uh, the buyer, is very important. They can help you with the pre-work that's done on a consulting basis over a year or two as needed. They could bring in the uh, capable partner companies they have, wealth management, CPAs, attorneys, and possibly specialty consulting companies. And they can ensure that you are targeted uh, towards companies that are gonna be interested in buying you instead of uh, trying to do what I I would call a broker approach, putting you on a website and hoping for the best. So those are some of the things we encourage people to start the process over a period of time and they'll find they get the best valuation for their company. When they go out. Great insight. And that's something that that I'm certainly going to touch upon too. What are some
0: mistakes that founders executives really want to avoid in the event, Ken, that we're in this soft recessionary backdrop environment for another couple of quarters? What are some really key mistakes sellers want to avoid? Well, first of
1: all, I think one of the most important things to do is it's selling your company, you need to sell it at the right time. You're gonna find that we're pretty much in a K economy, as we've talked about. There's some companies right now that we're representing that are selling extremely well, even in this environment. We're not even doing most of the work physically on site. A lot of it's being done on Zoom, on uh, GoToMeeting. Private equity companies are perfectly comfortable with doing it, a lot of owners are. It's something you need to get used to doing when you do get into the uh, phase. While well, it will be nice to meet physically, you've got to understand that not everybody wants to get on an airplane right away. Towards the close, it might be possible, but it isn't necessary to have a lot of physical meetings. Second, is you shouldn't rush to sell. In this environment, if you're in the bottom K of the K, if you're in the retail business, if you're in the restaurant business, if you're in you own a hotel chain or you're an investor in hotels, or in certain entertainment businesses, logistics, not as much, but travel, this is probably not the best time to sell unless you're desperate. What you're going to find is that a lot of the private equity companies, big ones and small, are forming what they call distressed funds, and they're getting a lot of investment in it because they believe after January, because the administration and uh, the Congress did not go forward with a rescue, a second bill, a funding bill, that a lot of companies in that bottom part of the K are going to be in distress. So they're going to try their best to pick up things on the cheap. If you're a company that has the assets to go without putting your wealth at risk, then it's probably better to wait until we get through some of this effort. That's a decision you have to make for yourself, but you're going to get way below what your valuation was before COVID. I mean, those industries were doing very well. The second thing is if you're in the top part of the K, if you're in biotech, if you're in software, if you're in professional services, if you're in FinTech, if you're in construction, believe it or not, because there's a lot of construction projects go beyond two years to complete, people feel, investors, that by then this will be pretty much over. There's a lot of construction going on, a lot of people taking bets. So those types of companies, in what I would call the work from home type of capability, are still being valued very highly. Analytics companies, uh, uh, companies in AI, all, you know, telecommunications companies, their valuations aren't really going down. So you need to look at the industry you're in. And, and like I said, if you're one of those companies uh, that isn't ready to sell anyway now, now is not the time unless you absolutely have to. On that theme,
0: Ken, in, in a more challenging backdrop, what are some couple of tips that founders, executives can do to make themselves more attractive in a more challenging competitive backdrop to make
1: themselves stand out? Well, first of all, one of the, the the big things they can do besides the things we've already talked about is they could start instituting a strong succession plan. Most of the capital that's out there is in private equity. Mm-hmm. Private equity companies are good at buying companies and possibly restructuring them, but they're not very good at running them. So, and they know it. So what they really prefer is the companies they're buying to have a good management team and a management team that most of them are gonna stay behind. And they'll incentivize them to stay behind, that they'll expect that the people in those roles, especially the CFO and the head of sales, are strong. They will probably expect, if you don't have a strong number two that could replace you, that they'll expect you as the owner or the uh, the CEO to stay on. They'll incent you, but you may be of an age that you really don't want to do it. You want to move on. But it, they can encourage you uh, to do the deal. They might want you to stay at least a year. We've seen some at six months. We've seen many at two, and they'll tie your compensation or your payout uh, to an earnout tied to you staying behind for so many years. So Greg, let me let me ask you some questions. Okay, you see. Uh, especially uh, where you're located, you see a lot of biotech companies, a lot of high-tech companies out of the Philadelphia, mid-Atlantic region, and and you have uh, clients all over the United States. What do you see some of the the issues they start to come to you with uh, in this type of environment when they're thinking about eventually exiting? So one of the biggest issues we help them
0: think about are ways to reduce their tax liability, because oftentimes the, the founders and executives have the talent and the skill and the resources to build and grow a company, but they don't think about what the net outcome is going to be to them on an after-tax basis. So really we see our roles to educate, even from things that may be fairly basic, such as 83B elections. If if they join a company and their equity is subject to a vesting schedule, an 83B election is a really smart move to make because it's it's an agreement with the IRS that basically allows the clock to start ticking for capital gain tax treatment, which capital gain rates are meaningfully lower than ordinary income rates. So we have seen uh, entrepreneurs, founders exit uh, who didn't file 83B, and that whole tax liability was taxed at ordinary income. So that's one really smart thing. Also the really understanding how to navigate stock options, both whether private company stock options or public company stock options. Understand the nature of a non-qualified stock option, that whether you exercise and sell or exercise and hold, there's a tax liability at the at the exercise itself. Versus an incentive stock option, where if you exercise and hold it two years from grant date, a year from the exercise date, now that gain is taxable as a long-term capital gain. So really educating them on the nuances of the nature of their equity. Also for those who want to do some gifting, as they approach you know, 18, 24 months out and exit, and they know they have a loved one, uh, a family member that they want to support, there are some really tax smart strategies, Kim, where they can begin to shift some equity now at a lower valuation. So when the company transacts at a higher valuation, it's in a lower income bracket tax bracket recipient's name, therefore taxed at a much lower liability. And if their end goal is to get that person some resources anyway, It's a smart way to do it. Uh, Another thing we help educate them on is marrying tax planning with philanthropy. You're right. We do an awful lot of work in the life sciences space. It's a helping industry. It's a life-changing industry. And many of these founders are driven, and they have charities and nonprofits that are very close to them. And so there are vehicles like donor-advised funds and charitable remainder trusts where if you're even a, a little bit motivated philanthropically... There are some really powerful tax benefits that can be derived when you have a spike in income in the year of a transaction and you make a commensurate contribution to a donor advised fund and a child remainder trust that gives you a bucket of money to then give out for the rest of your life, but you
1: capture the tax deduction in the year of the event. That's very true. And the other thing we find is that, especially in privately held companies, you either have a founder, like we're talking about a lot here, but you also have partnerships where you have anywhere from two to five partners sometimes. And even more complicated, we find we have family companies where the father and the mother may be involved. It could be a fairly sophisticated company, and they have a number of children, some involved in the business, some not. Do you find any issues, different issues, with those three different types? You've talked about sort of the one owner. Do you see anything that uh, comes to mind with partner-owned or family-owned companies?
0: Yeah, you know, I think you 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 nailed it on the head when you said they've got to have those those agreements in place. They need to have an understanding of what happens in the case of a a death, divorce, uh, a misunderstanding between direction where the company is going. The cleaner all that is outlined when times are good and before an event occurs, because another another challenge I see, whether it's a family owned company or just a startup is a lot of these companies can don't plan if the transaction doesn't occur. Right. And so we really guide founders and executives when you're doing your modeling, when you're thinking about, again, having that, that team that you alluded to, where they have an advi- a financial, certified financial planner, an accountant, attorney, an M&A advisor, you need to think about what if no outcome occurs? What if the deal totally goes south? Because you and I have both seen a lot of deals fall apart on the five-yard line. And so you can push really hard. And it's those last few yards that are really important. So plan for no outcome, plan for a mediocre outcome. What if it's a, a modest return on capital? And then, of course, the good outcome is easy to plan for. But think about the tax nuances, the estate nuances, the gifting nuances around each one of those back into today. What do you need to do over the next 12 to 18
1: months in each of those scenarios? You know, one of the things, uh, Greg, we've done with our clients is... Uh, when they didn't think they were getting enough, but it was a very fair offer. They probably weren't going to get more, but they were getting this substantial amount. They wanted to leave more money to their heirs. We got them involved with an insurance broker and company that uh, sold them. And, you know, it it sounds crazy, a million dollar, four million dollars, a very large one-time cash a life insurance policy that would be paid out to their heirs upon their passing. And that satisfied some of the need they wanted to have to leave behind or leave to a charity. So there are a lot of things that the average owner won't think of. That's right. And you, you mentioned the 83B and we've had clients that didn't think about it that came to us after they already put the company up for sale. And by then, it was too late to declare it. That's right. And they didn't understand why. It's like, well, you know, if you talk to your wealth advisor, well, we don't have a wealth advisor.
0: Right.
1: You know, they, they try to do too much themselves too fast. So uh, I agree. The other thing that, that we've seen is the children assume, different children in the family assume, and these are, you know, $100 million company, they assume they're going to be the CEO. And the father makes a decision, made a decision that the son wasn't going to be CEO, but the younger daughter was going to be the CEO, didn't tell the son. And then they all ended up suing each other. The other thing that people don't realize is lawsuits. And this is the thing about lawyers. If you have any litigation going on, it will kill a deal. It just won't happen. There, nobody's interested in buying a company that's in significant litigation, especially if they're the ones being sued.
0: Right.
1: So uh, another reason families we find are uh, sometimes uh, more complex than even you know partnerships or owners right. or uh, companies that are public to deal with. I think those those planning points can make
0: even more sense because if you if you look at potential income tax and estate tax, we talked about income tax planning, But no matter how this election outcome unfolds and where the estate tax laws are in 2021, we know the credits are dropping to $5 million each by by the end of 25. And so really, these executives and founders really have four years to plan on what are things they should be doing to, to put assets in trust. Because if their ultimate goal, as you said, is to get money to children, grandchildren, put a trust together to support education for future generations. There are some really neat strategies, a grantor retained annuity trust, a spouse, a lifetime access trust. And the power in doing that, as you know, is if you're going to sell for, let's say a $10 a share, but the company's worth $4 a share today, you want to put those in the trust at four because you get the growth from four to 10 out of your estate. And that event occurs. It's out of your estate for estate tax purposes. Well, Ken, this was a great dialogue today. I think some really good information that founders and executives of private companies who are moving their company towards an event should be thinking about. Thank you for your time today, Ken. And thank you for those of you who took some time to listen
2: to this podcast. Seren Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. And with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Sarian Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.